When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 54, The Great Battle of Naseby. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Before we begin today, I'd like to thank my Patreon House of Lords, which has been joined by James Marquis of Lauderdale. Like all other patrons, he can now listen to this and every other episode ad-free. Go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica to find out more. Last week, we saw how Charles I and his enemies in the Long Parliament spent the winter of 1644-45, preparing to spend another year fighting their civil war. The king appointed his nephew, Prince Rupert, as his overall commander, and shifted a few of his other generals around. Lord Goring took over command of the king's western army, while Prince Maurice took command in Wales and the Midlands, only to lose the key city of Shrewsbury to Parliament. But, overall, the reorganisation of the royalist military was limited. The same couldn't be said for Parliament. The divisions between their commanders had finally been made public, and they were irreconcilable. Sir William the Conqueror Waller and Oliver Cromwell led the charge in Parliament, accusing their commanders, the Earl of Essex and the Earl of Manchester, of incompetence, treachery, and a failure to fight this war to win it. In response, both Essex and Manchester took aim at Cromwell, accusing him of being a radical in both religion and politics, who wanted to break the Solemn League and Covenant with the Scottish Covenanters, and who opposed the introduction of Presbyterianism to England. There was some truth in all of these charges. The political battle for the future of the parliamentary cause continued throughout the winter, and it was tied to the military reforms which everyone, except maybe Essex, understood needed to happen. A new model of army was established, with Sir Thomas Fairfax as its commander-in-chief. Fairfax was the obvious choice, because part and parcel to the new model ordinance was the self-denying ordinance. This contentious ordinance required the resignation of any MP or Lord who held civil or military office. This came about partly to address the rampant corruption, real and imagined, 
among the civil officers and to centralise the military. The War Party, a loose grouping of MPs who wanted to see the King defeated, not negotiated with, held sway in the lower house, so the ordinance passed the Commons without much difficulty. The Lords were far more resistant, seeing this as a blow against their traditional military role. But, after the failure of the latest round of talks, the Uxbridge Treaty, and after the ordinance was redrafted slightly, it finally passed the Lords. When we left off last week, the newly formed New Model Army had a Commander-in-Chief, Sir Thomas Fairfax, and a Lieutenant General of Foot, Sir Philip Skippen. But the position of Lieutenant General of Horse had been left vacant. Deliberately left vacant. It was clear to everyone who Fairfax and the Commons wanted in this saddle, but at the time the man himself was at the centre of a political crisis between the two Houses of Parliament. That man was, of course, Oliver Cromwell. Whatever his personal opinions, whether he was a radical or not, he was an exceptionally talented cavalry officer, and exceptions would be made to keep his service. On the 20th of April, the Committee of Both Kingdoms temporarily placed him in command of a force of two cavalry regiments, to prevent a link-up between Charles and Prince Rupert. This was, essentially, a test, and Cromwell would pass it with flying colours. In a skirmish with the King's vanguard under the Earl of Northampton, Cromwell's force defeated the Royalists, chasing the fleeing men for three or four miles, and taking more than 200 prisoner. He chased the survivors to a nearby manor house, which then surrendered to him, and pressured Farringdon Castle to surrender. The Castellan refused, and Cromwell's assault was repelled at the cost of 14 men. Without infantry or artillery, successfully storming the walls was unlikely, and Cromwell withdrew back to Reading, his job done and the test passed. On the 28th of April, the Committee of Both Kingdoms gave Sir Thomas Fairfax the first mission of the new model army, to relieve the Siege of Taunton in Somerset. The single, centralised National Army of Parliament was divided. Fairfax took 6,000 foot and 2,500 cavalry, marching southwest. The rest of the new model army was to march to meet with Cromwell near Oxford. But Fairfax soon received counter-orders from the committee. Actually, now we've thought about it, just send a small part of your army to Taunton. Instead, we want you to besiege Oxford. Now, Fairfax might have looked around at his still-forming army and realised that he really didn't have the numbers or the guns to have a real chance to take the royalist capital. But he'd been chosen for a reason. He followed his orders. He set up his siege lines on the 22nd of May and waited. Because he stayed in one place, the new recruits and transfers to the new model army could muster at the siege, instead of having to chase him all across England trying to catch up. Cromwell's forces were ordered to Oxford to rejoin the main army, and he dutifully followed these orders. Again, he doesn't technically have any formal command yet, and dancing to the committee's tune was the best way to change that. The committee also ordered the Earl of Leven south with his covenanted army, to have him add his numbers to the new model army, but Leven had other priorities. Montrose was rampaging through Scotland at this point, and Leven wanted to stay near the border in case the main field army of the Covenant was needed to put a stop to him. 
Leven also wanted to prevent any link-up between Montrose and Charles. So instead of moving south, Leven returned north, putting Carlisle under siege. Fairfax may not have expected to actually capture Oxford, but threatening the city worked for Parliament's strategy, because it forced the king to react. Charles and Rupert had led the main royalist army north, relieving the siege of Chester, and the Committee of Both Kingdoms was very concerned about what they planned to do. Hence, Leven's fear that Charles would head straight north to join with Montrose in Scotland. By besieging Oxford, the parliamentarians hoped that the king would have to call off whatever plan he'd made to force him to be reactive rather than proactive and return south. It kind of worked. Charles and Rupert, at Chester, considered their options. The north was a tempting choice. It was still dotted with small royalist garrisons, and survivors of Newcastle's army could be fairly easily recruited back into the king's army. But to the east were the fairly undefended Midlands. Rupert saw this opportunity, and with his typical energy, he set off. Well, this news caused panic among Parliament's leadership, by marching east, the Royalists had a clear path all the way to the heartlands of the Eastern Association, Essex, Hertfordshire, Norfolk, Suffolk and Cambridgeshire. This was an incredibly valuable region from which the Long Parliament had been drawing men, money and political support for the entire war. Rupert's first target was the city of Leicester. On the 30th of May, he demanded the town's surrender. When this was refused, Rupert ordered the walls bombarded, with specific focus on a weakened part. Within hours, a breach was made, and for the rest of the day, Rupert prepared for an assault. At midnight, a single cannon shot rang out, the signal for six simultaneous assaults. The defenders, outmanned, outgunned, and outmaneuvered, fought fiercely but were overwhelmed. Their resistance earned them little mercy from the royalists. Only slightly more mercy was shown to the citizens. The rampant slaughter only ended at dawn, but the looting continued for days. The death and pillaging were so atrocious that a special collection was made by Londoners to send relief to the survivors. Two days after Leicester fell, Fairfax received another order from London. The fall of the city and the vulnerability of the East Midlands demanded a swift and total response from the new model army. But, oddly, Fairfax took his time to end the siege. Four days after he received that first order, another letter arrived which essentially told him off for not following orders and repeating that he needed to lead his army to face the Royalists. Fairfax's dallying opened up a debate in Parliament. Those who wanted to restore political control over the army saw an opportunity essentially ignoring the entire point of the self-denying ordinance by reinstituting the committee which had overseen the missed opportunities of Newbury II. But the proponents of this argument overplayed their hand. The war party took the opportunity of the debate to not only break the Committee of Both Kingdoms' hold over the new model army, granting Fairfax complete freedom of command, but they also raised the issue of Cromwell. Why not just give him the position of General of Horse? A petition was raised and sent to Fairfax, who, with his hands finally untied, made it so. 
Oliver Cromwell was now, in name as well as fact, General of Horse in the new model army, and Fairfax's second in command. The Royalists left Leicester on the 4th of June, and marched south against the town of Daventry. Fairfax marched to meet them. The decisive battle of the Civil War was about to begin. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome? What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich. We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan. We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets. And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world. Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Pulling the brim of his hat down to hide his eyes from the glare of the June sun, Edward Thornton looked out from atop his horse. From his vantage point, on the very left wing of the army, he could see the compact formations of the enemy spread out across the opposite hill. Smothering the embers of nerves in his gut, a pre-battle tradition for him now, Thornton reminded himself what Colonel Oakey had said. The officers all said the same thing. That the king was desperate, that he'd run out of men to force into uniform, and that they caught him as he tried to run north to recruit Catholics. Shifting in his saddle, even he could see that the enemy was outnumbered. Still, he'd seen enough battles in this damned war to know that nothing was ever certain. Worse, he had a bad feeling that his regiment was going to be volunteered for some crazy scheme. Dragoons usually were, but that was what he got for being a dragoon, he supposed. His current regiment was, like the rest of this new army, newly forged together. Alongside Thornton were troopers he'd fought with under his Lord Manchester, fighting for the Eastern Association. But he saw new faces, of men who'd written for Sir William Waller, or for that overblown fool, the Earl of Essex. This was going to be the first proper fight they'd had together, and that fact didn't help the nerves. 
Thornton glanced, as he must have done thousands of times, at the nearby harquebusiers on his right. What he wouldn't give for one of their leather buff coats. They might not do much against shot, but at least they were better than his basic red coat. Thornton's attention was caught by another rider, approaching Colonel Oakey. He recognised him as one of Cromwell's men, and as he watched him talk to the colonel, then point out towards the enemy, Thornton's bad feeling only got worse. For the dozenth time since taking position, he checked that the powder for his carbine was dry. He was going to need it. Charles and Rupert led their army south to the town of Daventry, while Fairfax led the new model army north up Watling Street. There was a moment of surprise for both armies when scouts from each bumped into each other in Whittlewood Forest. Charles had taken the moment to go out for a hunt, and riders had to be sent to call him back to the army, which formed up on a hill near Daventry. Here they prepared to resist an attack which never came. The next day, Fairfax led his army north, when his scouts once again alerted a royalist picket. The parliamentary commander prepared his army for a fight. He was convinced the king would march on them in the night, so Fairfax ordered that his entire army be armed and ready for a fight, which, again, never came. The royalists were waiting for the return of a force of cavalry, who'd been sent to deliver the loot of Leicester back to Oxford. On the 13th of June, Fairfax learnt that the king was once again on the move, this time heading back north. Then his newly confirmed general of horse, Oliver Cromwell, arrived on the scene. Joined by Cromwell's large force of cavalry, the now complete new model army reached Gillsborough, where they spent the night, and the royalists spent the night at Market Harborough. In the darkness between the two camps, their cavalry and scouts fought and skirmished and killed, trying to deny intelligence to the enemy while learning as much as they could. Lipscomb makes a point of emphasising how much better parliamentary intelligence was at this point. In previous episodes, we've seen how the Long Parliament's espionage and scouting was usually above and beyond what the Royalists could manage. In this case, the fact that the two armies were operating in parliamentarian territory meant a constant flow of tips and volunteers from the locals, which supplemented the scouts of the new model army. And then, to top this advantage off, Fairfax received an incredibly valuable piece of intel. His scouts intercepted a rider from Lord Goring, who was leading another siege of Taunton. The second siege had been relieved earlier in the year, but Goring had reinvested the town almost as soon as the new model army detachment left the area. Goring's plan was to take Taunton and then bring his sizeable force to join with the king. Goring's army was the second largest royalist field army, second only to the one commanded by Charles and Rupert. Naturally, he'd been ordered to come and join the main army in the Midlands, but Goring underestimated how easily he could capture Taunton, and he decided to stay. There were also rumours, possibly true, possibly invented by critics at court then and later, that Goring was an alcoholic who spent most of the Taunton siege blind drunk. Either way, Taunton was taking longer than planned, and Goring wrote to the king and urged him to wait for his arrival in two or three weeks. This was the letter which Fairfax's scouts intercepted. So as the Royalist and New Model War Councils took place on the evening of the 30th of June, 
Charles and Rupert were awaiting news of Goring's imminent arrival, and Fairfax knew Goring wasn't coming. It was one hell of an advantage. Charles, realising how close Fairfax was, and that several days of manoeuvring hadn't shaken his tail, decided against moving further north. He would just have to make do without Goring. In the wee hours of the 14th, Fairfax led the new model army north towards the village of Naseby, where he prepared his army for battle on high ground. Around the same time, the Royalists moved south from Market Harbour, when Rupert received a report from his own scouts that the Parliamentarians had disappeared. The Prince led his own reconnaissance, because how do you lose an army? And when he found the new model army, he watched as they began to reposition, moving to another hill, Closter Hill, just north of Naseby. Orders were sent back to the Royalist lines, ordering their own reposition to Dust Hill, directly north of Closter Hill. At seven in the morning, the Royalists began to move. As they deployed, Cromwell reportedly realised that a hedgerow, which ran along the western edge of the land between the two hills, would be an ideal position to hold. He ordered a force of dragoons, under Colonel John Oakey, to mount up and race to take possession of it. This was what our composite dragoon, Edward Thornton, saw earlier in the vignette. They quickly took up position, now very close to the Royalist lines, and waited. Fairfax had the numbers, and he had a good defensive position. He wanted to let the Royalists make the first move. Rupert was more than happy to oblige. As soon as enough Royalists reached Dust Hill, he ordered an attack. The new model army was still deploying, and he hoped to take advantage of that confusion and so the attack began between 10 and 11 in the morning. Rupert led the cavalry on the Royalist right, and he prepared to face off against the new model horse under the command of one Henry Ireton. Another name to remember, not least because, shortly enough, he'll be Oliver Cromwell's son-in-law. Rupert heavily outnumbered Ireton's cavalry, but as he advanced, the hedgerow dragoons opened up on him. Rupert commanded his accompanying musketeers to stay and engage the dragoons. Their fight was so intense, we can see archaeological evidence of it to this day. Rupert's cavalry took a number of casualties from these shots, and as they rode by, they returned fire with their own pistols. Ireton moved down from Closter Hill to prepare to meet the Royalists, who stopped to form up, reload their pistols, and ready themselves for combat. On the Royalist left, Sir Marmaduke Langdale advanced forwards with his cavalry, as Cromwell did the same to match him. In the centre, the advancing Royalist infantry had quickly driven off the parliamentary vanguard and begun to climb Closter Hill itself, pushing back the lines of the new model army. In between the regiments of the Royalist infantry was a regiment of cavalry, who helped drive the attack home in a fierce push of pike. The Royalists had left their artillery behind when they rushed to take Dust Hill, but the New Model Army struggled to bring their cannon properly to bear. Closter Hill was too steep, and their artillery was placed too far back to aim at the approaching army. They only fired two shots, and both of them went far too high, and they stopped after that. The Royalist offensive pressed at the parliamentary lines. At least one regimental banner fell during the melee, and it began to buckle the new model army. 
Sir Philip Skippen was shot in the torso during this fight. A musket ball went clean through his coat and armour below his right rib. He fought on, refusing to leave the battlefield, perhaps fearing the sight of their commander being dragged, bleeding, from the field might destroy his men's morale at this crucial moment. On the parliamentary right, Cromwell now engaged Sir Marmaduke Langdale in a fierce cavalry fight. Cromwell had, due to the confined space of the hill, formed his cavalry into rows of three, rather than two. Cromwell's troopers were dedicated and motivated fighters. They were nicknamed the Ironsides, and they trusted their commander. The narrower front cost his front row dearly, taking intense losses as they rode towards Langdale. But the ferocity of the remaining two rows demolished the royalist horse and left them relatively unscathed. It was like, quote, a torrent driving all before them, end quote. Back on the parliamentary left, Henry Ireton's horse was having a rough time. I mean that literally. Ireton's horse was killed from under him. The man himself was stabbed in the thigh by a pike, hit in the face with a halberd, and then taken prisoner. The capture of their commander broke two regiments of his cavalry, and through the gap they left, Rupert's troopers charged. Rupert then did what Rupert always did. He chased the fleeing men, almost to the border of Naseby village itself, and then started to sack the baggage train. But Fairfax had left his lifeguard behind to guard it, possibly expecting Rupert's horse to break through and go straight for it. They usually did that, after all. The lifeguard were heavily outnumbered, but they were determined, and they bogged Rupert down in a fight he hadn't expected. In the meantime, Ireton's remaining cavalry rallied and supported their infantry. They fought fiercely, and succeeded in rescuing Ireton, and he was quickly escorted off the field to find medical treatment. Whether or not he wanted to pull a skippin and fight on, it doesn't sound like he was in any state to do so, or that his men were about to let him try. Back on the right, Cromwell's Ironsides formed up and, alongside Fairfax himself, turned and began to attack the Royalist infantry, who quickly began to take massive casualties. Rupert now returned from the fight over the baggage train, only to find that his success had not been shared by the rest of the Royalist army. Indeed, they looked on the verge of a crushing defeat. The infantry who had fought to Closter Hill were almost surrounded, unable to break the infantry in Parliament's centre, and flanked by determined cavalry and foot. Rupert, to his credit, gathered as many of his cavalry and any infantry he could find, and marched to find the king. At this point, the Royalist Reserve was uncommitted. It was commanded by Charles himself, and centred around his lifeguard. Rupert urged a second offensive. Gaunt suggests that either the king was persuaded not to throw himself into a dangerous situation, or that it was clear to everyone that the reserves would make little difference. The decision was made to withdraw, and when the committed royalist lines saw this, their morale collapsed. Infantry regiments began surrendering en masse. Lord Astley, who commanded the royalist infantry, chose to order a surrender rather than allow a massacre. 4,000 men and around 500 officers threw down their arms. Fairfax brought the bulk of his army into formation in order to face the holdouts, the reserves and the royalist cavalry. The cavalry turned and fled. 
Fairfax finally let his own cavalry off the lead, and a portion chased after them for several miles. The rest of the Royalist infantry, with some exceptions, did not escape. The withdrawal started disciplined, but it quickly turned into a rout. They were either killed where they stood, cut down as they ran, or surrendered and were taken prisoner. Then, the new model army swept over the Royalist baggage train. In Gaunt's words, the soldiers killed or mutilated many women, and the many treasures of the king's entourage were looted. These included the king's personal correspondence. They will play a role in the future, but for now, let's just say that Parliament will absolutely use the king's own words against him. The great and decisive battle of Naseby was a disaster for the royalist cause, which exceeded Marston Moore. Cromwell wrote to the Speaker of the House of Commons, where he described royalist losses as around 5,000 killed and captured. That would be more than half the force Charles had led at the start of the battle. The king led what was left of his army west, leaving the bulk of his artillery behind. Next time, we will see how Charles's cause collapses in the aftermath of Naseby, as the First English Civil War finally comes to an end. Thank you to my House of Lords, including but not limited to the King's favourite Mike Sanders, David Braswell, Duke of Bracewell, Thomas Kessler, Marquess of Dorset, and Ross Templeton, Earl of Norfolk. Remember that every patron, regardless of rank, receives an RSS feed which you can put in any podcast app to listen to the podcast ad-free. If you want to support the podcast in other ways, please recommend it to a friend, or post about it on social media. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.